Jesus. Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. ...and then wipe them with her hair. However, such a beautiful act draws sharp criticism from some of the others. In this passage, which relates the story of Mary's anointing of Jesus, the themes of belief and unbelief are particularly clear. The worshipful act of Mary epitomizes faith and love, while the cold, calculated, cynical response of Judas epitomizes unbelief and hatred. As Jesus himself warned those who would reject him, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You suppose that I came to grant peace upon earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Like no one else, Christ evokes the antithetical extremes of love and hate, devotion and rejection, worship and blasphemy, and faith and unbelief. How people respond to him divides the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, believers from unbelievers, and the saved from the lost. Look at verse 4 with me. And one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now, unless these were unbelievably wealthy people, this could have easily been the most valuable possession that they had. Not only that, but since it was in an alabaster box, it was almost certainly an heirloom being passed on down. And if so, it was really essentially the financial security for that family. If this was an heirloom that had been passed down, what that meant was if there had been a famine or if there was an invasion, because back in those days, things could happen that would result in tremendous turmoil. It meant that even if there was absolutely no way to make any money, no way to make a livelihood, the family wouldn't starve. This was a hedge against disaster. It would have required a year's wages from a common laborer to purchase this ointment. But like David, Mary would not give to the Lord something that cost her nothing. Her beautiful act of worship brought a fragrance in the very house that they were dining, and the blessing of her deed has been spread throughout the entire world. Little did Mary realize that night that her love for Christ would be a blessing to unbelievers around the world for centuries to come. But probably when they first saw her even bringing this thing out, they probably thought, oh yes, what an honor that she would take and give Jesus a few drops of this. But that's not what she did. When she breaks the box and gives it all out, what is she saying? She's saying, I'm going to follow him and I will not be conditioned by cost. In other words, I'm not going to say, I'll follow you as long as it's not too expensive. I'll follow you as long as it's profitable. No, what is she saying? What she's actually saying is, I'm willing to give you anything. I'm willing to give up anything. She's not giving just 10%, by the way. There's no way when she did this, this was a tithe of her net worth. It was probably more like 80 or 90%. Now, I don't know what your annual wages are, but let's just say it's $40,000. Tell me, what would you think if somebody gave you a bottle of perfume that was worth that much money. That's a lot. And it means for sure that this would have been Mary's most valuable possession. 
It's almost inconceivable that in any kind of normal average household, there could be things just lying around that are worth that. I dare say most of you do not have an object in your living room that's worth your entire salary. Some of you might, but that's not normal. And it certainly would not have been normal for these people. In a sense, she's saying, Lord, I sense what you're giving to me, and so now here's something I can give back to you. If Mary was around later in history, maybe she would have written a hymn that goes like this, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing and so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So what she's doing at this point is saying, I will follow you no matter what the cost. But wanting to appear philanthropic, Judas acted outraged over such a massive waste of money, exclaiming, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? You have to admit at first glance that Judas builds a persuasive case. Who can argue with him? But Judas is a man in disguise. Judas is being dishonest on every level here. He doesn't care about the poor. He doesn't care about propriety. He doesn't care about Jesus. He is a thief who steals from the treasury and has just seen a year's worth of income that could have lined his pocket now lying on the floor. So the devotion of Judas is just a masquerade. Now, chronologically, these are Judas' first recorded words in the New Testament, and they expose the ambition and selfishness that ruled his heart. He had cast his lot in initially with Jesus, expecting him to usher in the political, earthly, messianic kingdom that most Jewish people were looking for. As one of their inner circle, Judas had eagerly anticipated his exalted position in that kingdom. But now for him... That dream has turned to ashes. Jesus had so antagonized the Jewish leaders that they now intend to kill him. Now, some have tried to attribute noble motives to Judas, arguing that he was just a misguided patriot, trying to prod Christ into ushering in the kingdom. But the New Testament portrays him as nothing but a greedy thief and a murderous traitor, and even in one place, a devil. Judas is the greatest example of missed opportunity in history. Think about this. He lived day in and day out with Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for three years. Yet in the end, Judas rejected and betrayed him. Now Mary and Judas are seen in stark contrast in Proverbs 10.7 where we read, The memory of the just is blessed but the name of the wicked shall rot. Or as Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And Mary had both. She had a good name and precious ointment. But not so Judas. Even today, people will call their daughters Mary, but no parent would call their son Judas. In fact, his name is listed in the dictionary as a synonym for treachery. His last words are found in Matthew 27, 4, where we read, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? 
you see to it. But what's fascinating is every time we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, somebody rebukes her. Last time it was her sister Martha, and now it's Judas. Do you know what that tells us? Oftentimes, truly pious people will be rebuked by the religious because they can't understand the nature of the love that the pious have for their Savior. We mentioned last week that a prostitute also anointed Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. I'll read the account from Luke 7. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him because she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. This display of emotion and physical touch most likely disgusted Simon because of this woman's reputation. He would never admit it out loud, but his heart was full of judgment. And yet Simon had a wrong estimation of everyone in this scenario. What do I mean? Well, he had the wrong estimation of Jesus when he thought if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is. He then had a wrong estimation of the woman thinking she's an outcast who doesn't belong anywhere near Jesus. And finally, he had the wrong estimation of of himself when he thought, too bad everyone can't be as discerning as I am. So misjudging people's motives in their service for Christ is nothing new. Really, when you get right down to it, Judas is saying there are only two options, and they are these. Selling Jesus or being sold out to Jesus. And that has not changed. There are still only two options. Using Jesus or making yourself available to be used. We can't be like Yogi Berra who once said, if you ever come into a fork in the road, take it. Think about that. Of course, he was also asked if he wanted his pizza sliced in eight or six pieces. He said, let's go with six. I'm not sure I can eat eight. You'll laugh later. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is it worth being set apart to serve Christ instead of our own interest? When you go into the Old Testament, one of the things that is very confusing to read about is holy furniture. I mean, the first time I started reading Leviticus and Numbers about holy furniture, it seemed a little bit strange. Here's the holy pot, and over here's the holy chair. How can a pot or a chair be holy? Because, see, when we think of holiness right away, we think of morality, don't we? You think of some kind of inner morality and purity or something like that, and, of course, holiness will lead to that. But that's not primarily the meaning. The reason a pot was holy was that they put it in the temple and it was only used for worship. And so from that, we now see what it means to be a holy person. It means to be completely set apart. What does that mean? Does it mean to be perfectly obedient? No. That would eliminate all of us. So there is a principle involved here. 
There is a decision that has to be made. In the beginning, being holy is not so much about your record. Why? Because nobody is perfect. Nobody does everything right all of the time. It's not a matter of, I have 100 rules, and this week I kept 82. Next week I'm going to keep 84, and that means I'll be 2% more holy. No, we are missing the forest for the trees. What it means to be holy is to say, am I following God conditionally or unconditionally? Well, let me give it to you another way. Am I using God, am I sticking with God as long as it profits me, as long as it's not too expensive, as long as I have some say in my life, as long as I'm able to put my heart in other places? Do I serve God as long as he gives me inspiration and helps me with my problems and helps me with my self-esteem and maybe even gives me more self-control? Am I obeying God for my sake or for his? Am I using him to get to my goals, which are conditional, or am I letting him use me to get to his goals, which are unconditional? Are his goals unconditional and my conditional, or are my goals unconditional and his conditional? Have you ever said, like Job, what good is it to believe when everything is going wrong? What good is it to be a Christian when all these bad things are happening to me? Holiness means to say in the words of the hymn, Take myself and I will be ever only and all for thee. What it means to be holy is to make a decision to say, No matter what he says, no matter what he sends, I will not only obey him, but I will quieten my heart and reflect until I see that his hand is good upon my life. I will obey him because I will give him not just my will, but also my heart. Now, strictly religious people do petition God in prayer. Sometimes they pray a lot. They pray for their own family's needs. But here's the one thing they don't know anything about, and that is personal and lavish worship. They don't know anything about praise and adoration. They don't know anything about that. Because God, if he is there, is a remote God. He's a boss. He's a king. And so we see that religion can't produce this type of devotion. Now some of you are hearing me describe this and you're thinking, well, you're describing sounds like a religious fanatic. But no, it isn't. Why? Because religion cannot produce this. Let me tell you something about fanaticism. If you need to suffer, if you need to be persecuted, if you need to have bad things happen to you, see, that's what a fanatic is. Fanatics are people who are deliberately outspoken and deliberately offensive. There are people who go to Westboro Baptist Church holding up signs saying, God hates fags. Now, does the Bible teach that homosexuality is a sin? Absolutely it does. But is that the way to reach them? Not hardly. But they deliberately get people to get mad at them because they say, look at me now. I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're an idiot. If you need to suffer, if you have to suffer, you don't understand the gospel. You're just a religious person. You don't know the magnitude of what he has done for you. You're basically just into religion. You need to assure yourself that you're a good person. 
But on the other hand, if you aren't willing to suffer, if as soon as things get hot you say, hey, what good is this being a Christian if I'm going to have to go through all this stuff? Then you too really don't understand the gospel. You too in a different way are a religious person. You too are doing things and expecting to be protected and rewarded quid pro quo. As David mentioned, I'm going to be showing a video on Wednesday nights for the next three weeks if you really want to see what this looks like. Religious people don't understand the magnitude of what God has done. If you think God owes me a good life and that meets in any way with a disappointing life, what happens? There is nothing that will turn you into a more self-righteous person than to have a disappointing life. Nothing. Why? Because you say, life is unfair. God is unfair. Things are unfair. I'm as good as the next person. Why should my life be at this stage where it is now? There is nothing that makes you more self-righteous than that. Why? Because underneath that impulse God owes me has now met with disappointment. Now, often that doesn't turn you into a shallow, superficial person. It turns you into a self-righteous, angry, bitter, and cynical person. But what the gospel creates is holiness, not fanaticism. And it will really never look like fanaticism. And Mary is the perfect example of this. There's an openness and confidence in this act that she has performed. There's also an incredible humility as she is at the feet of Christ. There's also, though, an amazing boldness before men and God because she has let down her hair. Why do you think that Matthew, Mark, and John show us her being rebuked? Who is rebuking her? Who is disgusted by her? Who is offended by her? Who is perplexed by her? It's the religious people. See, that is not religious fanaticism. Religious people look at her and they can't figure her out and that makes them very upset. Why? Well, first of all, it's mainly because of her hair. Religious people may pray and do church stuff. Religious people may even pour out their goods. But religious people won't let down their hair. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, her letting down of her hair shows she is confident. Like I have said, in those days, a woman only let her hair down when? When she was home? when she was with her family, when she was with the people that she knew that she was a part of. Now, religious people never have that kind of confidence before God. They're never sure like that because religion is always working, trying to obtain God's blessing. It's always trying to be good, always trying to do what's right, always trying to earn it. So first of all, they can't handle this kind of confidence that she has. They don't understand it. By the way, it's not just confidence before Christ, is it? They're astounded at how she doesn't care what the culture thinks. They're astounded by the fact that she probably doesn't care what Martha thinks. I always thought it was very merciful of Matthew, Mark, and John not to tell us what Martha did when she smelled this perfume. You know she would have been in the other room and she would have smelled this. She could have said, Mary... What in the world are you doing? But she doesn't care what Martha thinks. She doesn't care what the culture thinks. 
She doesn't care what the men think. She only cares what Jesus thinks. Religion doesn't know anything about that. We wipe off my face like those black preachers. I can't preach like them, but I can't sweat like them. Religion is very concerned about what the culture thinks, very concerned about the expectations and very concerned about appearances. It is extremely concerned holding on to cultural mores and holding on to its customs and doing all the rules right to bolster and shore up their sense that they are doing well in their own strength. They don't know anything about this kind of confidence that Mary has before Christ. But on the other hand, they also don't know anything about the intimacy, this letting down of her hair. Now really, if that doesn't come from religion, then where does it come from? It doesn't come from willpower, even though Mary gives up her will. So where does it come from? What she has done is she has stared at the beauty of what Jesus has done for her until it has satisfied her, until he becomes beautiful for who he is in himself. That's what makes you holy. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be more holy? Number one, make the decision. Make it today. What decision? Realize it's either or. It's not an in-between. Either you are using him or else make yourself available to be used. Once again, you say, does that mean I have to be perfect? No. Do you think Mary was perfect from here on in? Do you think Mary perfectly loved him, perfectly obeyed him? Of course not. But she has made her decision. She set herself apart. So set yourself apart and pour out your life for him also. We do this by getting our eyes off of ourselves and only onto Christ. Really, it depends on the word pour. Do we, like Mary, say, I will pour myself at the feet of Christ in his kingdom? Or do we change the spelling and look inward? And then instead of pour me out, it's just pour me. Instead of P-O-U-R, it's P-O-O-R. Pour me. Nothing good ever happens to me. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat a worm. Why did Mary pour herself out? Because she saw Jesus pouring himself out, which he literally did, because when he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross, he says, I am being poured out. Later, Paul would write, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Like Paul, because Mary looked at that beauty, she was transformed into its likeness. Holiness only comes from the gospel, and more specifically from the beauty of watching Jesus pour himself out. We can be like Mary, not a fanatic, but not a pragmatist either. She has found the right balance. Verse 7, please. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Notice that as intense as Mary's worship was, it was theologically driven. What do I mean? 
In his defense of Mary, Jesus makes clear in verses 7 and 8 that this act of hers has been prompted by a level of understanding about his mission that has eluded the rest of the disciples. If you've ever read the Gospels, you'll see the disciples spend a lot of their time arguing about which of them are the greatest. So our text contains a marvelous statement regarding Mary, for it tells us that she knew that Jesus was about to die. He was about to give his life for us on the cross, and Mary knew it. Moreover, she was the only one that knew as far as we can tell. Now, Jesus had tried to tell the others. Hours before on his way to Jerusalem, he had told the disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples had not understood it, as becomes clear in their conversation later with Jesus in the upper room. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Mark's version of this account makes it clear that Mary fully understood the symbolism of this act. According to Mark 14.8, Jesus said, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare it for burial. So at this point, Mary seems to be the only one who has grasped the certainty of Christ's coming death. She alone recognizes how fleeting this moment is. This is worship with the mind as well as with the heart. She, she sees what she has been given. Now, before a Christian says, I will give up everything I have because what I get is worth so much more than that, the model of that has always been Christ. He gave up everything he had. He died. He paid it all. When we see what he did for us, there's only one way we can really operate commensurately. Romans 12.1 says, Make your bodies a living sacrifice. Put your life up there as a living sacrifice, which as the King James says, that's just your reasonable service. I love that term, your reasonable service. Don't we see? Not it's incredible service, not it's very hard and difficult to give service, but that's just the way Christianity is. It's a radical religion. No, it's our reasonable service. How can you come to grips with somebody who's given himself utterly for you without you giving yourself up for them? That's just reasonable. To fail to do so is not just an offense to the moral sense. It's also a crucifixion of our intelligence. It's as stupid as it is wicked. It's illogical. So as we finish up this morning, we see that only Mary understood. She had understood for some time. Now she broke her box of perfume over Jesus in order to show him that she understood. How did Mary understand these things when others had failed? The answer is being in the place that we find her right now. Where? She is at the feet of Jesus, anointing him and wiping his feet with her hair. May I suggest to you that if you do not know much concerning spiritual things, it is because you have not spent enough time at the feet of Christ. Do you want to learn? Do you want to grow strong in the knowledge of God's, wills and, God's will and ways? 
The only way to do that is we must learn from Jesus. You say, but how do I do that? Certainly, I cannot sit at his feet literally today. That is true. But you can do the same thing through studying the scripture. In Hebrew idiom, sitting at one's feet meant only that you were learning from that person. It was the place of a child learning from a parent or a pupil learning from his rabbi. We are told that the Apostle Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Today, we can do the same thing by studying the book Christ gave us in which we find him. Do we study the Bible? Some people would like to know it, but they will not discipline themselves for the necessary work. So, are we like Mary? Or are we like the Judases of the world who criticize those who are bountiful in their love? Really, what a contrast there is at this point. Out of his greed, Judas sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But Mary gave Jesus an offering worth many times more than that amount. Judas kept the bag from which he pilfered, but Mary broke her box in order that all may be given to Christ. Judas sought to turn attention from Jesus, while Mary sought to turn it to him. Let us emulate her with our lives today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you and you alone are worthy of our lives. In a world that screams for our devotion, let us not settle for the trinkets of this world that are quickly passing away. 